not a whole lot of uh, hashtag reopen fervor in your area? I mean, maybe there is. I guess there was a protest in Olympia, which is a bit south, you know, the state capital. But it to me, it seems people are pretty distanced, pretty much at home. A lot of uh, mask wearing. It seems like Seattle's pretty much on board. Yeah. I'm not a doomsday person in either direction. I guess that's the privilege of being a white male centrist. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's probably a good idea to to gradually dip our right. toe back into a sense of what the way we used to do things at the same time. Yeah. Why, why are we, why are we saying today everything back? Like how it was, why right. was it so great? Yeah. It feels like more of the kind of war on war of over authority. Like yeah. I only have to respect the authority that I, that's pre-approved ideologically or I got to get back to work so that I can keep on paying banks for the money they lent me for my home. Like I'm angry about that. I want to make sure the banks get their money. Right. Right. We have these, we have these oppressive systems that need to keep churning along. You know, we've been fortunate that we both still have employment and we can pretty much pay our bills. You know, there's not interruption in that. I know people are struggling with that and that that's a, that's a real thing. The answer to those problems to me isn't to just cast off restraint. It seems obvious, even from a moderate position, that it could be very dangerous for everyone to force something, complacency, and get, you know, it, it could really blow up on us. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't feel like I live in fear. I have a mask that I wear sometimes when I'm going to be in closer proximity, but otherwise, I don't really want to use it. I wash my hands, I think, a good amount, but not a whole extra amount. I'm not right. feeling like, oh, I touched a keypad. I'm going to die now. I, I don't feel any of that. And probably most people would be okay. I get yeah. that the right. 2% that aren't, that's no good. Right. But it is not Ebola. You know, it's not right. taking over vast swaths of the population and we're bleeding in our eyes and stuff. Like, we right. just want to over, overwhelm our hospitals. Now, people are worried about their, uh, you know, small businesses and stuff like that. And I understand that's a that. real concern because I don't know what to do after like these right. places shut down, like they don't own their premises, they lease. And so let's say you right. can't um, pay and let's say somehow you're evicted. I feel like that's not really happening. But why would someone do that? Why would you throw out your tenant that will go back to making money as soon as they can reopen? Right. Why, you want to find a new tenant for that space? You want yeah. to have it renovated? How annoying really shows though how tenuous everything is yeah how you know we those of us who are kind of middle class working class we know what it's like to go paycheck to paycheck but apparently so do so many businesses and corporations that were you know depending on this month's profit to keep going it seems like a trifling thing but and you know it's significant to this podcast that if amc goes under right i don't know what i'm gonna do right and then what will take its place? Now we have these movie houses. Well, some companies got to move in. I guess just one that wasn't so unlucky to go bankrupt right. during the pandemic. Will Disney now control the theatrical? Yeah, or something like industry. that. But is Disney doing that great? You know, yeah. I know that they've got all of their bajillions in the bank, but as far as new business and income, what are they making? I guess Disney right. Plus subscription. Yeah, it's an, it's very strange. I mean, every, no matter what, things are already irreparably changed and everything will be different. 
forever now and it's just a matter of what else happens before we get it back on our feet again yeah i feel like i'm barely driving and before i was driving all the time multiple mm-hmm. places a day and i'm filling up my car with gas once a week or more and now i'm right. you know once a month i feel yeah. like i filled up my car with gas and thinking like oh wow i don't yeah. need to drive back and forth to the place where i work three times in a day because right i have other stuff to do Right. I just leased a car, so I've been keenly aware of my mileage, and yeah. it has just it's just dropped. I've also lost about 10 pounds, which is very strange because right. I'm not observing fitness or good uh, lifestyle choices, but it just shows me how much I would go out and right. casually obtain food that I didn't need. Yeah, I, I'm continuing running. I started that at the beginning of this. I'm on week seven of that, strangely. I don't think I've uh-huh. lost an ounce. Yeah. But I've grown in strength and endurance, so we'll I bet your calves are impressive. Probably better than they well, not pro, better than they were before. Certainly, <laughs> recomposition, let's call it. Yeah, so my my fat has just turned to muscle. That's that's why I wasn't going out at all to stores and things for a couple of weeks. I took a couple of weeks off, and I just we just started this past week going out. And I don't know. I'm at that weird place where it's been long enough that I feel like I'm not going to get sick, but I don't want to be too complacent about it. Right. Um, could happen at any moment i realize but i'm sure i've been exposed by this point well there's so much signaling too there are times yeah. that i haven't gone to the supermarket and have done without a small thing not because i really cared but because i'm thinking people are going to be judging me in the line for standing there only with this one unnecessary thing right yeah and yeah. that's been unnecessary to them they don't know right, right. why why i need this pint of Tillamook strawberry ice cream. Right. Yeah, I need my Fentiman's cherry cola because the... Some of us uh, need it. The, the uh, probiotic fermentation is good for my gut health. Right. There must be some reason why someone would need a tub of ice cream. Right. Like, right. remember when everybody was really upset with those Whole Foods pre-peeled oranges in a <laughs> package? Yeah. Because they thought it was such laziness. And then right. advocates came forward and said, right. well, people who, you know, don't have mobility with their hands, you know, they rely on stuff like because they can't right. peel an orange. And I was like, yeah, I you guess need to find true. your ice cream advocate. I, that's what I'm saying. I need I need to find the, the group that needs the pint of ice cream. Right. And then identify with them. The dairy deficient. Yeah. Anyway, this that could be our first segment because I didn't really see that's anything better. interesting this week. Well, as promised, I saw Brahms. Yes. Boy, too. Oh, good. I so now you know what I was hinting at last time. What I, I didn't don't. give away. I don't. What, what were okay. you trying not to give away? That they scrapped all the lore of the first movie almost oh, entirely. Oh yeah, yeah. It is really something to take a movie that was mediocre and then in the sequel to undo the only thing that was good about it. Right. Yeah, you know, that's that's quite an accomplishment. Because he's he's real now, right? Not to like yeah, jump. Brahms is Brahms is real. So they made all sorts of errors, I felt. I wasn't sure for a while if the two films had anything to do with one another except Brahms. I thought, did they abandon the location and the history and the previous characters? No, they're intended to be part of one of the same universe, but just so slipshod was the writing, you wouldn't have known till about halfway through. They introduce a groundskeeper character who was not in the first film. And I thought that was a pretty big mistake because Mm -hmm. in horror sequels, often someone from the first movie will come back who knows more than they let on. 
and the audience already kind of has an idea of who they are, this person should have been in the first movie, or they should have brought someone from the first movie back into this one as the person who has more experience with the forces that they're encountering. So we have Katie Holmes, who has a young son, and they are attacked one night in their home, a home invasion, and they're traumatized. And so dad, who's also an Englishman, they have strange things where this is all happening in English in England, but the, the female protagonist is always American for some reason, but everybody else is a Brit. And so the father decides we got to get out of town. I can work remotely. We need to come together as a family and heal from this trauma because the boy is now mute after what has happened and he won't speak. He just writes on a notepad. So they go out into the country and they rent this country home and the woman welcomes them. And she's like, well, let me show you around the house. And the dad's like, no, we're fine. We can take it from here. And she just kind of awkwardly exits. And I think, why was that? Wouldn't you accept a little tour of the place you've just rented for a month? That's weird. And where are we? It turns out we're on the estate of the house from the first movie. It's not really made clear right away. And they're walking in the woods and the boy finds Brahms. He's buried in the woods. And he takes Brahms and it's clear that Brahms has started to communicate with him. But of course, at first, the parents think that he is just finding a way to process his trauma by, by being able to speak to Brahms. Um, strange and upsetting and disturbing things happen. They meet this groundskeeper who is sort of their friend, but sort of threatening. And then ultimately, yes, we find out that Brahms is this hundred-year-old malevolent demonic doll that has led children to murder their parents for as long as anyone's had a Brahms. Always in the same house. You'd think there's something to that, but whatever. And we find out that this uh, doll had been controlling the guy who lived in the walls with old Brahms, with the real in-person Brahms. And uh, yeah, things go nutty from there. And I don't get what was happening with the lore. I don't get why the doll wants to kill people. That We never went into that. Um, but ultimately, the, the doll is destroyed by fire and the family escapes. And uh, yeah, I, th I think we're back to being good again. But what a, what a missed opportunity it, sure. for, for a bad horror sequel. What happened to real Brahms? Right. Because he didn't die at the end of the first one. Right. And, he, and this happens only like two years after the first one. And it's called The Boy 2. They put the two in there. Yes. So this is not a revamp or a, a, it's not an anthology series. This right. is the sequel to that film. Right. And even before we discover that it is the doll that caused the man in the walls to go mad and to do all of these things, he was controlling that man. Brahms, the doll, is shown as moving his head and shifting his eyes hmm. and moving on his own accord. Whereas in the first movie, he could only do that when she wasn't looking at him. And we come to find out that's because clearly there's a person living in the walls who's moving him. But this Brahms can move. And it begs the question, well, could Brahms move back then? Right. And really, it wasn't the guy in the walls moving him, but Brahms himself. Right. But that's not answered. And everybody knows that it's the doll except for this family. Mm. And now if Brahms has been burned. Is that going to be enough 
have the demons that were in him been released to take up another um, host? It depends or, on the box office for right. Boy 2. Right. And so I just wish that the narrative had held together better because I like a silly movie like this. And this just wasn't, this just wasn't good. Hmm. Wasn't good. I'm sorry. It's a, I mean, I paid $10. I paid $10 for it. Oh boy. That is pretty recent, isn't it? Yeah. It was just out and I did it because I said I was going to watch it. Otherwise I wouldn't mm-hmm. have done it. And I thought sure. to myself, well, I haven't You're paid my AMC subscription this month. Right. It was twice that, you know? So if this is the one thing that I can give money right. to AMC for, I'll, whatever, I'm giving it to AMC, not for Brahms. Yes, that's a good thought. I was thinking, I forgot, I forgot about the possibility of uh, on-demand from AMC. I've been like hesitant to actually say this because I don't want to be seen as like a, a, you know, a corporate stooge or anything. But I would be willing to keep paying that subscription just to oh, help I them know. be around after everything. I feel kind of similarly. And so I guess the best way to do that is through their app, which is not bad. Um, right. Like it comes through. They have a set top version of it. Yeah. Um, it's just on our Roku. It's a channel and mm. they have a pretty wide selection um, that is well curated and filterable for like mm. sale. So they have newer releases that for whatever reason they're offering for three ninety nine, and they show those all in one place. So they're easy to find. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have pretty much everything that has come out um, before movies stopped happening. And it's right. all available for rent. And I figure eh, if I rent a couple of those, that's the same as I was paying for two subscriptions, really for us three, because Josh had a separate AMC one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't see anything worth talking too much about. I streamed old stuff. I also watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire with Shireen, and she loved it, and it was great to see it again, and it's perfect, and I love it. Um, it's on Hulu, so it's, it's uh, real easy to, to see again. Nice. And uh, anyway, but the other things I watched were Albert Brooks' uh, Defending Your Life, and I just have, I've always been meaning to see it. I have been looking for the Criterion Edition, which I, is not findable. And then uh, I heard that it was on HBO, and so I streamed it there, which makes sense because it feels like an HBO movie. Um, it's fine. I always wanted – I like Albert Brooks. I've only seen uh, Lost in America. It's with Julie Haggerty. This is a film with Meryl Streep where Albert Brooks plays a man who has been hit by a bus and is in this kind of like in-between place, this purgatory that's this bureaucracy, and he's assigned a defender uh, played by Rip Torn, who is great. And uh, the thing I didn't like that I hoped I would like was the humor. It's very kind of hacky and it's just basically stuff from his standup turned into jokes. But what I liked about it was the conceit that judgment, final judgment of one's life is not about how moral or pious or did you dot these I's and cross these T's. It it boils down to did you conquer fear or not? Do you get ruled by fear or did you learn how to live? And that, of course, is that what a neurotic comedian would write about judgment day but uh i found that to be the most interesting thing about it he falls in love with meryl streep playing a woman who's also going through the same trial process and the other big running joke is that the food there is great and you can eat all you want so people are constantly going to restaurants and ordering just giant platters of food i guess that's a joke um it's fine (laughs) it's a good one i just sold it really well 
it's a beloved movie and i feel like i'm catching up with it too late if i'd seen it when i was younger i probably would have a but it's extreme it's 1991 uh when it was made and it feels like that there's nothing kinetic or exciting there's a little bit of action in the very end of the movie but it's it's just white people in rooms talking so well i could probably relate to that even I have even less to say about the other thing I streamed, but I will mention it because I want to make my case for why I watched Hotel Transylvania 3. Mm. Uh, because a, a second sequel monster comedy, animated monster comedy starring 90s SNL personalities may not sound like much of a, a big deal. Yeah, and it's it not doesn't, sound, great. doesn't sound great. It's, uh, it's okay. The humor is okay. Here's why I like it. It is directed, as all three of the films in that franchise are, by Gendy Tartakovsky who is a great animation director from the old school Cartoon Network days. He created the show Dexter's Laboratory. He was involved with the show Powerpuff Girls, and he created a great action show called Samurai Jack. And he really, really gets uh, cleverly staged, very cartoony comedy animation. And so even though these movies are a little bit, the, the stunt casting and the voices and the jokes are not all the best, the staging and the the cartoon action and the animation, if you're into that sort of thing, is actually top notch. And um, I'm a big fan of his, of Gendy Tartakovsky. So, and he doesn't get to make that many movies. He scored this franchise. He's been trying to make a Popeye feature for a long, long time, which in his style and with his expertise would probably be great. But he hasn't gotten to do it. So this is the only time we get to see him making movies. So that's my little pitch for the Hotel Transylvania series. I probably won't watch, but yeah, I, I wouldn't bother. Unless the update, though. Yeah. So I didn't do great this week with uh, being an intrepid movie watcher, but uh, you know, I had other stuff going on. So what is up with so much stuff going on? I don't know. I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel like I haven't had a lot of free evenings. It's not like it's bad, but just surprising. Right. Usually, like, your life just makes you have to go here and then go here. And then you have the little spaces in between. And then you escape. And then you – I feel like it's very hard to – even though we're home and, like, technically it should be easy for me to hide and escape, it's not. Right. Because everybody's on Zoom. And so things that previously would have been dealt with via a couple of emails, everybody wants to have a conversation via video because it's a new toy. That's one thing for me is that work has become almost unbearable because yeah. it's just constant meetings about things that wouldn't have been meetings before which is understandable to an extent, but is a bit overwhelming. Yeah. I find that I've got to reorder my day in new ways because I can't just be at work all the time because it's the only thing I have to do. Cause it'd be very easy just to open a computer from dawn till dusk and just work on stuff and feeling like, okay, well work is done. So now it's no screens. So now what do I do? All right. Uh, let's go to a break. And when we come back, let's talk about, uh, adaptation. All right, we're back. Are you back, Dan? I'm back. Oh, oh, whoa. You sound like you're here now. I changed nothing. That's crazy. You sounded like room tone and echoey, like you were standing eight feet away, and now you sound like you're right up against the microphone. Huh. 
All right, Dan, this was my selection. Um, and this one was not really ironic or weird. It just has been a long time. I guess it is weird, but it's been a long time since I saw this movie. I remembered loving it and I wanted to watch it again. And this was just an excuse to do so. For adaptation, the 2002 comedy, comma, drama film directed by Spike Jones, based on the book by Susan Orlean, the book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, and uh, written by Charlie Kaufman and uh, Doug Kaufman, starring Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, uh, and others. Brian Cox, Tilda Swinton is in there. And uh, the always wonderful Judy Greer makes a uh, quick appearance. This is a very bonkers movie just from a conceptual point of view. The screenwriter of Being John Malkovich is hired to adapt the, and I'm talking, I, I'm talking about this movie and I'm also talking about the real world at the same time, is hired to uh, adapt the nonfiction book, The Orchid Thief, uh, which is kind of a straightforward bit of uh, journalism about this strange character in Florida named John LaRoche. And famously is a book that uh, doesn't have much of a arc as far as narrative goes. In the real world, screenwriter Charlie Kaufman is tasked with turning this into a film. Is a very interesting choice. I'd love to know why he was considered to be the right person to adapt this particular story. Uh, instead of adapting the story straightforwardly, he finds himself with writer's block and instead writes himself into the screenplay and writes a movie about the struggle to adapt this story. Um, Meryl Streep plays Susan Orlean, the author of the book, and Chris Cooper plays John LaRoche, the uh, Florida botanical dude who is quite a strange character. And it starts off just about the neuroses of the screenwriter and his fictitious twin brother, Donald. I called him Doug before. He's Donald Kaufman. <sighs> we just Let's just go back to episode zero and start over again. <laughs> There's always 24 hours ahead of you. Right. That's what I've learned. Hmm. That no matter what, where you're at, you can always restart your day. Wow. Thanks. That's helpful teach us that in the program so Kaufman writes this script that he considers unfilmable it's kind of a stunt it's kind of just a way of dealing with a writer's block he writes himself into the story he writes about his own neuroses and then he takes uh the story of the orchid thief and he he kind of uh, sensationalizes the characters and he ends up creating this insane world of of uh sex and crime and and intrigue and he didn't think for a moment that it could be made. And when Spike Jones told him it was great and he wanted to try and get it made, uh, he was certain it would end his career. At least this is the lore about the movie that, you know, Kaufman would say now. Uh, but it's insane in 2002 that you'd get a movie about the writer of being John Malkovich played by Nicholas. K. I, I, this movie is such an, a, an, an anomaly and such a peculiar, you know, singular bit of meta weirdness. There's no reason that it should work. You think about what it must've been like for Orlean to see her book get adapted in this way and for her to be portrayed in this way. Anyway, that's a very, very rambling overview. We'll get into some of the details now, but Dan, what is your history with adaptation? I saw it 
first run. I really liked it. I had been a fan of being John Malkovich and wanted to see this. I still think that maybe the screenplay is too clever by half. Yeah. It, it's it's to me a marvel of of screenwriting. The m- many layers that are going on. I, when he's flashing back and forth to Charles speaking into the tape recorder of what the characters are going to be doing, and it's either stuff we've already seen or stuff that we're seeing right now. And it's such an interesting take on this book that they're able to capture he's able to capture the tone of the book i understand in a lot of ways and yet make it zany and completely off the rails by the end and also be very human and about his own experience and the even the use of the title of adaptation of the screenplay as well as of these orchids and the way people change because you need the dynamic character there needs to be somebody who comes to some sort of a change between beginning and end which turns out to be him um, I think that Nick Cage's performance is great. I think that you can always tell which twin you're looking at, even though they look identical. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Cooper, obviously, this is his Oscar role. Um, Meryl Streep is is fine in the role. She won a Golden Globe for this, which is kind of surprising. That's a more um, a more competitive category because it doesn't break into drama and comedy. Tilda Swinton is an absolutely everything we watch. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Cast in absolutely everything. Right. Um, I was reading last night that uh, Susan Orlean was pretty hesitant to give her okay to this. And then ultimately she decided to just let them do it and ended up liking the movie. But just when she originally read the script, quite understandably, she was thinking, she was just horrified. It, you know that she's being portrayed especially in the third act in this way and that was one question that i had about the narrative i missed um her her character being arrested at the end but i guess she was the plot synopsis says orlena's arrested hmm. and i thought That's for what line. right i mean the po- the possession of the drugs mm. i don't know would they even know what it was was it about the killings even though she right. had wanted to kill him, he was killed in an accident and he was shot by someone else. Right. So maybe she could have been found liable since right. she's the only living person. Or left. maybe it's just a lurid detail of the screenplay since it's, you know, spiraling out of reality and control by that point anyway. Right. To um, me, as far as who is responsible for the deaths, and it looked like the person, the other driver of the other vehicle also dies. So who was responsible for that? It's hard to say at that point. <laughs> right. Um, one thing I think is different this time. Uh, I feel like I watched the movie originally and just kind of went for the ride. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a crazy glimpse inside the screenwriter's mind and, and what it was like on being John Malkovich and what it's like to try and write. And, and But this time I couldn't I could also I couldn't watch it without the added layer of reality, reality and just thinking you know, about um, just how strange it is that a movie like this got made. And also just the weirdness of there's, there's an honesty about Kaufman's writing, which is, you know, other than the kind of weirdness of his plotting and his characters and that he's got this quirky vision of how reality works. He also pours so much of his own neuroses and issues into what he writes in a, in an unbelievably naked way in this movie. 
And, he, and it's quite early in his career. I mean, I know he'd worked in television and done a lot of things, but he was really just blowing up at this moment. And for this to be such a, a like to literally make a movie about himself and portray himself in this way. But also, I have to say, it made me a little uncomfortable, too, that almost every actress in this movie had to film some kind of a masturbation fantasy scene right. for him, which must I don't know, that creeped me out a little bit when I realized that that had to happen. I guess that was honest. Yeah. I don't know. And I didn't get his relationship with the woman. I forget what her name is. Um, Kara Seymour as Amelia. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what change did he undergo? Because there's kind of a bookend there where at the beginning he can't gumption up any courage or open up to her. And she and he loses her because of that. And in the end, he sort of feels like, okay, well, now maybe I can open up to you, but it's too late. Right. Are they friends? Right. That scene to me is like a version of a very movie script kind of a moment. So I wonder if it has anything to do with him having just surrendered himself to the Donald side of his. Yeah, uh, maybe. where now everything's wrapping up and you get a cute scene between them where they can admit their feelings for each other. That's definitely not in the spirit of the movie to that point. Right. Well, I kind of feel like, like uh, John Cusack in high fidelity where his big area of growth is being able to include a song he doesn't like on a playlist. I sort of right. felt it's like that right. kind of growth. Right. It's a pretty immature kind of growth. If you think yeah. that now you've come along I guess I really appreciate the fact that even though the ending is so like over the top and sensational and crazy, the, there's kind of a denouement between the brothers. There's that final scene mm-hmm. in the swamp and there's that business about Donald basically saying, I wasn't ashamed or embarrassed because my love for this girl who rejected me was my own. She doesn't get to tell me that I can't love her, which by the way, could also be extremely creepy if you take that. Right. Message. I kind of was thinking that's very incel. Right, right. But I guess in the in the context of the movie, it's counter to uh, Charlie's extreme neurosis and self-loathing right. yeah, yeah. to see Don- Donald, who doesn't really spend a moment worrying about anything and stumbles into success. You know, and obviously Donald uh, is not a real person. So I and I don't think this is another part of Charlie Kaufman. I think maybe this is I don't know. the Is it the version of himself he thinks he could be if he was not? consumed by neurosis yeah i suppose he thinks he would be more successful he would stumble into million dollar deals on terrible scripts although is that script terrible because it seems like it seems like everybody liked it yeah uh i i also did write down i copied and pasted the quote from the end credits from the does it come after the credits or before the credits did you see that when the quote quote. from the three comes up and it's something people say that it might have a lot to do with adaptation itself so this is this comes up at the end of the end credits we're all one thing lieutenant that's what i've come to realize like cells in a body except we can't see the body the way fish can't see the ocean and we envy each other hurt each other hate each other how silly is that a heart cell hating a lung cell and it's attributed to cassie from the three Mm. which is donald's dumb movie about a, a serial killer a cop who's chasing him and a femme fatale who all turn out to be the same person with multiple personalities. I mean, but that's a profound quote nonetheless. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a bold card from Charlie to say that you can't script that because mm-hmm. how in the world do you script what he's scripting? Right, right. And what Charlie's writing and what we're watching is all self-indulgent craziness. Mm-hmm. And as dumb as the premise of Donald's movie is, he just wants to make something that's fun and cool. And he's he's not right. filling it with his own issues. Yeah, because this movie would be nothing without... Charlie is our guide. If yeah. we're, just, I don't want to hear about the orchid thief and the woman who writes. It just keeps on. You start with the orchid thief, and then oh, let's pull it back and let's do the story instead of her doing the story of him. Oh, that's boring. Oh, let's pull it back even further of me doing the story of her doing the story of him. But then all three timelines come together in, in a in a wild way at the end. Right. I, I think it's. It's pretty good for one movie. You couldn't do a second movie like that. Right. It's a, right. It's a gimmick. And yeah. I think the gimmick works really, really well for this one. I, I'm kind of in awe that it holds together and holds my interest and isn't tortured. Because boy, could it ever have been. Right. And I felt like going into it this time, I got tricked a little bit. And I think this happened last time, too, all those years ago, where I started watching it on those terms of well we're he's you know he's going through all of this process but we're going to get something really profound about the orchids and what you don't really it kind mm-hmm. of becomes like you get a few choice lines and you get that idea of adaptation and darwin and all that stuff but even that it always feels like every time this movie says something or presents something that might be profound it always does seem to pull away quickly and pull back and recontextualize um it's a very peculiar thing, and it's lightning in a bottle. W- w- when else would a screenwriter be able to make a movie about themselves writing the movie you're watching? I mean, after this, no. It was, to me, a pretty original idea. Um, I feel like this was a thing. What was the movie we watched where there was a bunch of other filmmakers in it? Well, that was the case in As Good As It Gets. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But there was also um, a, there was the dinner party scene in this with Susan Orlean. Mm-hmm. And her husband is played by Curtis Hansen, right. director of uh, LA Confidential and other things, Wonder Boys. And uh, David O. Russell is one of the guests. Hmm. At, and I think everybody at the table is a, an editor or a filmmaker of some kind. Yeah, that just looked like an insufferable dinner party, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. But again, that's what's crazy about it is for Kaufman to look at the book and just make these assumptions about Susan Orlean and then write them into the movie. It's so audacious. Mm-hmm. And for someone who seems to be governed by fear and neurosis, for him to just run with that, I know that he's harder on himself than anybody else in the subject matter, but... It was a great movie to rewatch. I haven't watched it since I first saw it, and I remember really liking it. I remember something wild happening with an alligator. There's a certain graininess about the, the look of it. Yeah. I don't know what that's about, if that was just the era or if that yeah. was an artistic choice. Yeah, that's another thing too. That this is, this is Spike Jones following up being John Malkovich, mm-hmm. who got can't like uh, take his involvement for granted either. And I can't imagine a pair of of movies that are more different from the same creative collaborators. Whereas there are special effects in this movie, but they are in service of making it feel like it's happening in the real world. And you know, being John Malkovich is this quirky imagination special effects indie you know fantasy um which also was also is grounded in serious and dark ways but i don't know i just felt like i like that and i think ebert even references that in his initial review 
uh, he reviewed it and then he also wrote it up in his mm-hmm. great movies that this is, you know, uh, you'll note the ways that it's similar to being John Malkovich and then the many, many innumerable ways that it's nothing like that. Movie. Right. I mean, Ebert loves Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Just, I mean, being John Malkovich was his favorite of that year and he loved adaptation, both four star movies, just because it really does unleash your imagination and make you wonder what's going to happen next. It keeps you interested. Right. Yeah. And then uh, he, yeah, he really just loved Kaufman too. Cause Synecdoche, I don't think Jones directed Synecdoche. I think maybe did Kaufman direct Synecdoche, New York. I don't himself? remember. I don't remember. That one is one that I will rewatch, but I don't think I'm going to recommend it for the show because I don't, I wouldn't know how to start talking about that movie. Yeah. But I, I am going to revisit it. Um. All right. Well, yeah, I think I might be out of juice on this one, but um, I, I'm glad this movie exists. It's so peculiar. It's great. It's a great watch. The acting is good. The talent is so top notch. I, I like that. It's kind of a, it's very interesting to see Meryl Streep when she could still do such a like, kind of young viable carefree character now that she plays a lot of kind of stately you know older yeah anyway, it's not so unlike great. her character in the hours which yeah. was same year right? that same year i don't know right yeah no i believe it was i believe in fact i was just reading that i don't have the whole category but best supporting actor against cooper was uh john c Riley in mm. chicago and ed harris in the hours oh okay and then, um, so this one Globes and it won. Did this win it? I don't, that was the only Oscar this one. Yeah, right? that's right. For yeah. Chris Cooper. Which feels like one of those things where it's a blessing to Cooper for a great performance, but it's also mm-hmm. the, the way this movie kind of gets a nod. Absolutely. I think that this movie might have done better had the rest of the year not just been so strong. Yeah. As it was. That was uh, Chicago and the Hours and Far From Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, wow. that, was, that was a good year. Yeah. I mean, if you like movies like I like. Right. Right. Some of the, uh, this stuff is kind of obvious, but some of the best actor playing a pair of twins stuff mm-hmm. really, really seamlessly done. And just, yeah, the it's the acting and the, the seamlessness of the filmmaking. The fact that you don't see, you know, by this point in filmmaking, you don't see the compositing noise and stuff like that. But also Nicolas Cage just so masterfully, and seemingly effortlessly place two distinct people who happen to look identical. Yeah. You can just tell who you're looking at in an instant by the way he's playing it. Yeah. And playing Donald as, I mean, it's a fictitious twin of a fictitious version of a real person and he's dumb and silly and does some incredibly dumb, you know, when he's at the party, I don't know, he starts chanting and gyrating and saying incredibly dumb things. And yet he's very likable and believable as a person it's I, it's a, quite an achievement because now cage has become kind of just the go-to get him in your genre movie if you want to have like cred and get your movie seen and he chews a lot of scenery but you forget that he is really one of the great actors of cinema even yeah and even though um like if it were made today i was thinking like is this seth rogan and i was thinking of zach galifianakis mm-hmm. if you weren't so mm-hmm. famous already for playing twins right, right. you know <laughs> To me, it would be somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. I think Rogan could could pull it off, perhaps. Not not to this level, I don't think. But. Maybe with some coaching. Yeah, but again, this is such a singular project in screenplay. It's not like a thing. I hope we're not going to get an adaptation reboot. No, nor should we. Readaptation. All right, Dan. Thanks so much for the convo. <laughs> Readaptation. Of course. 
This has been our podcast. We are Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. The show is at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music, as always, is by Jonah Rapino. And we thank you for listening. We will catch you next time. Goodbye. All right, am I still I'm still there. All right, whatever. Let's just let's just do it. Just do it. I mean, it's episode 51. Who cares? Right. Nobody listens to a 51. <laughs> no.